Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. This is episode 41. We're coming at you on the eve of some, you know, in rather in the aftermath of some incredible news, you know, just crazy things going on in the news. Again, not that, again, the course of events is crazy enough, just kind of the things that we sort of expect to be happening over the next few months. And this is comes out of left field anyway. Of course, we're talking about Prigozhin's plane being shot down. We're going to talk about all of that and its implications. Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing great. Yeah, absolutely tremendous. Um, r- really sensational stuff going on, including, uh, of course, the new nations joining BRICS. So we're not even sure if the uh, that particular abbreviation is going to change. And the and the tremendous news from from Russia, you know, essentially a huge tragedy has just occurred. And I think we're still just only a bit less than twenty four hours after the event, still trying to process exactly what has occurred. And there's a lot of different analyses coming from there. And here we are kind of giving our particular position, given what we know less than almost two days after the event, I believe. So this is very, very much fresh uh, and it's kind of hot on the heels of this particular very mysterious, yeah, very mysterious tragedy uh, right in the heart of Russia between Moscow and St. Petersburg in the ancient lands of Tibet. We're going to be breaking down all the possibilities, conspiracies. One of the main things I think we can definitely say, though, is that we're never going to know for sure from any sort of official sources because this is maximum information warfare, true, you know, fog of war on all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, you're right. Bricks is in the news. Again, even if this hadn't happened, we had a huge show planned. Like, I mean, are we not, did we not? I mean, we have all this stuff from the National Security Council of Russia. We have stuff about Georgia. We have incredible interviews with Tucker and Colonel McGregor that we're going to talk about. So this is already a packed week on top of this sort of craziness. And it's so crazy that you know, if there's an interjection in this episode with an update after we recorded this because some crazy news broke, you know, don't be surprised because it's very much heat of the moment right now. But also be sure to check out last week's live stream. Episode 40 is on YouTube. We live streamed that. We're going to be doing a few more of those live streams in the future when we have the time, hopefully paired with some Twitter spaces as well. So be sure to check out the World War Now YouTube channel, especially if you're a Substack listener and vice versa. If you're a YouTube listener, be sure to check out the Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. But let's just dive right on into it. Dimitri, what the hell happened yesterday in the skies over Tver? Essentially, what what the footage did show, and you know, there was uh, footage from several different angles, but one in particular where uh, I believe it was a young girl and a mother were watching with their phone as a plane, as two explosions occurred in the air, and then two small explosions, and then they, they saw a plane, essentially a jet plane, uh, plummeting headfirst down into the into the uh, essentially the countryside of of the Tver Oblast, and that's situated just between Moscow and Saint Petersburg. And then, you know what came to what we came to later on understand was that Yevgeny Prigozhin himself, the CEO of Wagner Group, the largest Eastern European paramilitary, um, so not paramilitary, but essentially mercenary organization, was actually on that jet plane alongside his. Uh, of course, the hero of Russia, Colonel Dmitry Utkin, who we spoke about in many previous episodes, but very legendary former GRU Russian uh, Spetsnaz operator and uh, essentially a veteran of the Russian military, similar to Stilkov and other figures, but maybe even on a more extreme end, at least since the early 1990s. So we have these uh, two really esteemed figures, as well as some of their um, colleagues who died actually in the plane crash, overall 10 casualties. Uh, from this plane crash to head diving straight into the into the ground and the bodies have already been uh, have already been checked at the at the local Tver uh, hospital morgue 
And of course, they, ident they identified Prigozhin's remains as well as Dmitry Rutkin's remains, according to the tattoos, the height, and uh, I think it was uh, yes, several particular uh, physical traits of the bodies, because of course, um, after a plane crash of such um, you know such a sort, it is a little bit difficult to identify them. But definitely a horrendous tragedy. Tragedy caught everybody off guard, including some really public figures in Russia. I uh, just wanted to mention the names of the casualties. So on board are the. In terms of the passengers, we had Nicholas Alexander Sergei, who were essentially Wagner Group affiliates, uh, usually um, men who've joined Wagner since at least 2016, since Wagner has joined the Syrian operation against ISIS. There is, of course, Valery. Uh, Valery was in charge of Yevgeny Prigozhin's security, and he was essentially the main security advisor, a bodyguard officer for all intents and purposes. And there was another, Yevgeny Makarian, who was also an officer alongside Dmitry Utkin, assisting in uh, military affairs. Again, Dmitry Utkin, Yevgeny Prigozhin, so seven overall casualties on the passenger side. And of course, the, the two pilots, Alexei and Rustam, and uh, a 39-year-old uh, stewardess as well on board, Christina, who also passed away. All of them, of course, died almost instantly when the plane crashed into the ground. So there was no, there was no real um, discussion about survivors or uh, or exactly what's going to happen. But of course, they're going to most likely uh, recover the black box of the jet plane and investigate exactly what has occurred. But of course, there's a lot of versions because, well, we have such controversial figures dying essentially on the Independence Day of Ukraine on the 24th of August, which is a very... Uh, interesting date considering on the 24th of June, exactly two months ago, we had the infamous Yevgeny Prigozhin March for Justice, or what others would call uh, the coup attempt of Yevgeny Prigozhin, which of course uh, ruffled a few feathers to say the least, uh, to say the least but it uh, it definitely does bring to mind all these bizarre conspiracies, like you mentioned, Conrad, like who exactly you know, what caused this accident or who caused this accident? Was it, um, you know, was it an explosion? Did, of course, some of the early versions were a little bit crazy. Like, was it an uh, anti-air missile that was shot from a, from Russian ground forces that shot down the jet plane, a passenger commercial jet plane, mind you, which flew out of the Sheremetyevo Moscow airport, which, of course, most people, when they travel to Moscow, they actually use the Sheremetyevo airport. So this is some military installation. If anything, even the jet plane company doesn't necessarily even have any additional security around the airbase where you could hire these jet planes. So if you have enough, um, if you have enough money, technically you could have hired the same jet plane that Prigozhin flew. Other interesting facts, like which I guess are mysterious, like Conrad said, there is this this mystery around it. So which we we might not even have the full set of facts by the end of it, we'd need to consider the fact that Prigozhin typically, when he flew on this particular plane, that he usually had a plane double fly alongside him. So he had a plane either leave a few hours earlier or a few hours later. So I guess any sort of opponents or assassins couldn't necessarily tell which particular jet plane he was on. And so uh, one of those planes, of course, made it to St. Petersburg. So left Shremetsu, it made it. We're not sure who was on that uh, dummy plane. Or, uh, you know, there's, of course, the versions that Prigozhin survived. And we all, you know, we saw photos from his uh, his um, apartment building in St. Petersburg, his office, where there's photos of him, you know, uh, dressed up in all kinds of um, you know, fake outfits. And he was he did have this sort of, like, gangster, like, allure to him. So perhaps he could have faked his death. But at this point, it does seem like he has been identified amongst, amongst the wreckage. Uh, not a reference to Batman and Bane, but it does seem like Prigozhin has, in fact, you know, has has in fact died in this accident, and of course the probably the even the most tragic thing, Prigozhin being this anti-hero character who we spoke about, you know, extensively on previous episodes. But uh, heroes of Russia like Colonel Dmitry Utkin, uh, the former GRU colonel, and 
this is a real big blow to morale, not just uh, of the Russian civilians who are watching social media and kind of seeing some of their some of their heroes who have done you know absolutely incredible things in the past perish, but also yes, the people, the troops on the front line, those in Africa actually hoping for Wagner support as well. I think it's worth mentioning, Conrad, just the the impact this might have on the uh, people in Niger who were in many ways depending on. Evgeny Prigozhin actually being present, and Evgeny Prigozhin's latest clips are actually from Africa, where he visited Africa, and he just said, look, we're coming to free the people of Niger, we're going to support it, and again, the other versions, you know, the other, conspirator the other conspiratorial versions come to mind, were, were in, well, who could have planted an explosive on the plane? Could it have been planted at the airport itself? It's most likely yes, but Shremetsu Airport has really tight security, so whoever it was must have planned it well in advance. And could have been the French intelligence, the CIA, so many different versions. And of course, there are the there is that standard view, which I guess most Western media sources have taken at this point, where they're saying that the Kremlin has cannibalized its own, that Vladimir Putin is responsible, that you know they're not saying Shoigu outright, but there is that consideration that you know, General Gerasimov or General Shoigu are responsible simply because Evgeny Prigozhin was their ideological opponent, and we're not necessarily against the version. Uh, you know, that particular version, but it, it does seem very gruesome to not just as take out Evgeny Prigozhin himself, but also nine other people, um, many of them, of course, innocent, uh, including, of course, including the pilots and the stewardess themselves. It is a very bloodthirsty act. So if somebody has... Um, well, for the Gerasimov Shoigu stuff, I mean, Putin did just go down to Rostov to meet with Gerasimov. So people have kind of been painting together this timeline of perhaps when this plan was concocted but while obviously it is a possibility the kremlin is obviously going to be on the one of the main suspects on the list of who pulled this off i i think we're both in the same in agreement that i actually don't think they're suspect number one i think the way it was carried out was way too flamboyant and risky for how we've seen vladimir putin handled these situations again i think that if it was russian in origin or from the military i doubt it was from the Putin camp per se, like people talk about Shoigu, Gerasimov, maybe. Obviously, I want to hear your thoughts on where and what could be happening to Suravikin in a second. But you're right when you say that with French intelligence, with could be the SVU, it could have been the United States. Like you say, with with the context of Africa and Prigozhin having been allowed such freedom to fly between, you know, Niamey, Mali, Burkina Faso, you know, these places in the Sahel region from Russia, you know, then, and the fact that we recently saw ECOWAS say that they're very prepared and very, you know, interested in doing like a three-day, week-long or something in-and-out operation to restore, you know, the constitutional order and President Bazoum in Niger. If Rigozhin is suddenly taken out, then that operation might actually be feasible if Wagner isn't going to be as effective on the ground, if they're going to be in a state of confusion, if they're going to have to withdraw. I mean, we're seeing supposedly, I've seen these, you know, reported aerial shots of the big Wagner base in Belarus being dismantled already. There were reports that they were headed back to Russia. I haven't seen all of those confirmed, but some of the pictures do seem to indicate that about the situation in Belarus, which, of course, many were saying that that was where a assault on Kiev was going to start from. Maybe intelligence was leaked about that, and so the Ukrainians then wanted to take out Prigozhin and Utkin from being able to, you know, lead that assault from there. I mean, there's also the possibility that this was an internal Wagner, you know, dispute. You know, Dmitry, you mentioned that besides Utkin and Prigozhin himself, the rest of the members on the plane were not as high-ranking as some of the other shadowy 
Wagner, you know, field commanders and others. So obviously there's always that possibility. It does seem that it was a bomb that did do it. I've seen that from a lot of sources now, the evidence for air defense or, you know, ground to air missiles being used on the plane seemed to be minimal. I think, again, if that had happened, that's just, I just think that would have been insane. Like, I don't know why Putin, if Putin's, you know, going so soft in Ukraine itself on all of these being so careful, I don't know why he would do that over, you know, the center of Russian, you know, civilizational population. I just don't think that would be a wise decision from his perspective or something that really is part of his playbook. It seems more like, look, if like you could say Putin does psyops and does, you know, espionage and clandestine killings. This isn't a this isn't either of those things. This would just be like, you know, blatant terrorism, I guess. So you can't uh, you can't necessarily say that oh, this is like Biden is doing the whole I'm not surprised that this happened. This is Putin's playbook. It's like, no, bro, like you just that's don't just cuz you want to propagandize the people about this doesn't mean that this is just in line with everything we've come to expect from this guy. Of course, there is the possibility that Prigozhin has survived. Remember, in the context of Africa, even, uh, this is actually the second time that Prigozhin has been declared dead in the fall of a plane on October 13th, 2019, over the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which, you know, is just south of Central African Republic, which you could probably say is Wagner's central base in Africa based on their influence. A plane was shot down. It was reported that Prigozhin was dead, and he was not dead. I think it might have even been one of these two planes, you know, a dummy person situation. And if this is true, that Prigozhin died, there were these two planes, there was someone, you know, maybe being his dummy, it shows that the intelligence was deep, that they even knew exactly what plane he was going to be on and not his not his doubles. So obviously there is still the chance that he somehow pulled a fast one on us. Maybe this is, you know, if some people still believing 4D chess about the, you know, Belarus attack in Ukraine, about the whole original coup back in June. This is, you know, 12D chess. Now Prigozhin is a ghost, you know, that can move. Prigozhin and Utkin are going to reappear at the center of Kiev in February. You know, who knows what, you know, who knows what we're in for here. Anything could happen. This is such a kind of big, surprising piece of news. But of course, I think the main connection that we need to analyze now that no one knows about almost even more so, there's even less information about what's happening with Surovikin. Like, where is he? What are the plans? Like, is this whole thing just a giant reshuffle? Like, is this just a, is the trash finally being taken out? I guess that would be the, the mainstream narrative. And how does Surovikin prove or disprove that? Yeah, that's right. So Surovikin, of course, just a few days ago, it was announced. It's still, I mean, still in the Ministry of Defense website of Russia. So, but, it's, but it has been announced that Surovikin will be stepping down as the head of the aerospace Russian forces. Well, literally, this news came out maybe less than 48 hours ago. So, it is a little bit, uh, you know, surprising that you know, essentially, the timing is, of course, shocking. Um, there are a bit more conspiratorial themes. For example, you mentioned the shadow commanders of Wagner. Uh, just the fact that the Wagner group itself has been very silent on its end, and it hasn't really been hasn't there hasn't been any commentary on Evgeny Prigozhin's passing besides, you know, uh, you know, thoughts of mourning. But no versions have, of course, come out. If, if anything. Wagner and it seems like the Russian public and of course world the world public those interested in Wagner and its heroes are are very much looking forward to just what the forensics are going to show and kind of you know just what the official case will present it's you know once the evidence is out but I guess the commander next in line after Dmitry Utkin's passing and Evgeny Prigozhin will most likely be 
his his nickname or his call sign is Lotus, and his uh, he doesn't have a military rank actually. Uh, his name is Anton Yeliazarov. He has a he is officially a hero of Russia. So actually received a an award from President Putin himself in 2022 for participation in the SMO. DNR and LNR, so of course Donetsk, Lugansk, have also awarded him uh, Heroes of Their Republics awards. And uh, uh, Lotus was responsible for. Essentially, 2021, he was he was participating in Libya as one of the foremost Wagner commanders. In 2022, he was of course active in active in the SMO region and uh, very much responsible for the taking of Solidar. So, if you recall, when Wagner took Solidar prior to Bakhmut, there was that you know, it was sort of like a precursor victory, which you know was was pretty much going to go down as one of the primary victories of the early SMO period. And yeah, that's probably going. He's probably going to be considered for as one of the for, um, leading commanders. So if you see Lotus, um, Mr. Eliazarov come up in the news sometime soon, it's most likely because he is the most senior ranking member of Wagner at the moment. But uh, whether or not, you know, notable figures, Alexander Dugin came out in support saying that Daria Dugin uh, used to talk about Prigozhin as a hero. Of course, there was, um, he, Alexander Dugin said we should pray for the victims of the crash, which is true. We all should, especially those. You know, we're not sure exactly which members of Wagner were Orthodox Christians upon that flight, but definitely Evgeny Prigozhin was, you know, he was baptized and it seems like he was at least somewhat practicing, at least from the photographs we have. So there is that consideration. And, uh, you know, people like Dmit, uh, Konstantin Malafeyev from Sidegard TV have also posted his condolences. And they've called these people, these, you know, tragic heroes of Russia. So essentially the the view still stands that this these particular depths are, you know, are still tragedies. There isn't there isn't this internal consideration that well they were assassinated and good riddance by internal Russian forces. And that's not the stance at the moment. The stance is that it was a terrorist act. The question is who committed it. And there there is no victory here for Russia. It's a day of mourning, a day of tragedy. The twenty fourth of August will probably be remembered like that moving forward. It isn't some sort of victory for anyone in Russia. And in fact, the motivation again for somebody internal to cause such a drastic crime as you said conrad is just completely illogical they're just the motives are just not there there's um of course more efficient ways to do things and even geopolitically it doesn't benefit russia in any way so um you know we'll find i guess we'll just have to wait and see but these things are somewhat shrouded in mystery so that's just i think the the reality of it on the ground yeah i think when it comes to everything going on right now with with prigozhin and with you know in general just the sort of unease everything going on it kind of relates to the strelkov situation in a way that we keep talking about on the show because we talk about how was he locked up for the purpose of something to happen that they wouldn't want his voice out and for this perspective maybe it's good that he's locked up i don't know what he would be posting about right now as you know his established enemy prigozhin has died but if he would be gloating it's probably best for his soul that that he's not able to uh he's not able to publicly broadcast who knows though you know he is a christian perhaps he would be magnanimous about it you know maybe he would use it to pivot towards criticism of the regime i don't know he probably would have an interesting and informed perspective on probably who was behind it and i'm definitely still leaning towards the fact that it was at the very least not a putin direct order from the top in the kremlin i'm very skeptical of that being the case so i think Again, this is in the middle of the BRICS summit. I don't think that this is the image that Russia wants to project as it seeks to expand its, you know, kind of multipolar alliances to the rest of the world's population. Do they really want to be seen as this gangster state and that's already at war? Like, that's not the image they want to project. Lavrov 
especially in his his kind of diplomatic style is very much one of uh one of intelligence kind of a very kind of classy sort of high high status form of diplomacy that kind of you know it's it's very it, i think that's why him and g get along you know they're very well read erudite you know polyglots and whatnot so this is the sort of image they want to establish not a not this strong arming sort of uh you know, big power blocks fighting for power image, you obviously want to project stability. So as uh, as Bricks goes on, we see, again, it doesn't seem like it's disrupted the flow of negotiations and what seems to have been relatively successful advances in the interests of the Bricks block. I wasn't necessarily skeptical, but I was definitely not in the camp of people that was, you know, screaming about how any day now Bricks will announce a gold-backed currency completely destroying the dollar. Like, I wasn't... I wasn't on that camp of people that was getting a bit, you know, getting a bit overexcited about the prospects of this summit, but it's been going on and it doesn't seem to have been disrupted by these, this dramatic turn of events. But I mean, you're right, Dimitri. I mean, these, so many of these people, whether it's Daria Dugina herself, you know, who is, you know, that's more in the assured victim, you know, uh, perpetrator status, like she was taken out by the SBU. We have a lot of evidence for that. But then you get into the people we've covered on Ether Hour, like Givi and Motorola, up to even someone like Stremusov, and that starts to get much, much grayer to the point where it's definitely not just, it's not as easy as celebrating the martyrdom of heroes in the face of the enemy. Unfortunately, it's, it's much more complex and points to the true fallen nature of this world when these things happen. Yeah, I think, I, I guess we will voice this version. I, I don't think we've ever mentioned this, and it's, it, it is very much like a sneak peek, maybe into a future a for episode, but there, there are these considerations amongst very deep pro-Russian circles. And again, this is just the version, so nobody get upset, but uh, there is a consideration. And of course, it was put forward by Strelkov as well as other people in pro-Russian, Dianer uh, Lugansk spheres that, the assassinations carried out on the territory of Donetsk and Lugansk in 2014, 15, 16, uh, all the way leading up to Zaharchenko, were actually carried out by Wagner, early Wagner personnel. And I know that sounds a little bit crazy, but um, a lot of these ex, uh, or at least prior prior to becoming members of Wagner, a lot of these folks were part of the GRU, uh, Spitznaz, of various Russian intelligence agencies and uh, as well as military agencies. So. There is that version, and Stilkov did put out a random clip of sorts, or at least this was clipped out of a greater um, sort of presentation of his, where he does mention that a General Alexeyev of the GRU, this is one of the guys who released a short clip uh, during the Prigozhin mutiny, actually did uh, allegedly uh, confront um, confront one of the leaders of Lugansk in person and actually threatened them, That said that, look, if you guys don't stop with the uh, with the whole separatism thing, we're going to have to you know deal with you uh on a more or less, um, you know, he just said, we're going to have to just deal with you. And, you know, this this commander reported uh, this back to Strelkov, who was uh, at the time just the Minister of Defense of Donetsk. And he said that, you know, it's a very mysterious threat he received from a Russian general. And again, uh, Alexeyev was again responsible as well for early Wagner um, manipulations and the, just the forming of Wagner, it having so many former GRU members. So there is that consideration. Also, just the depths of all those folks that, you know, they were they were killed most likely by, by either former military or uh, active military troops, just the you know the, their passing is, and again, this is a subject for probably a, a more in-depth investigation. But it's def definitely is a version that uh, Wagner, at least in its early years, was responsible for some of these 
horrific crimes in eastern Russia and the leaders of Novorossiya have in fact fallen to uh, Wagner weapons or at least in its earlier iterations. So there is this very tragic anti-hero status that a lot of the Wagner officials had in its early years. Now, of course, things have changed. There is new members that have joined the organization. And in fact, Wagner as a mercenary group has proven itself in the SMO and it in fact continues to prove itself overseas. And generally, I think, Conrad, I think the, the main message of Wagner is essentially it's almost like a battering ram against the globalists, whether it be in Africa, against ISIS, against the bizarre like neo-Nazi slash libtard um, Kolomoisky constructs in Ukraine. It seems like Wagner is the sort of almost like the front shield and the bulwark behind which essentially what we, we have a young Orthodox Russia rising, which is, you know, strange in a way, but I guess just that's just how the chips fall. And Wagner today is definitely a lot different than it was maybe 10 years ago. And uh, maybe that's just how we should take it on board. And, you know, that's how a lot of Russians view it as well, despite its uh, maybe strange early years. And even Prigozhin himself, a very shadowy character, but, you know, he did die essentially serving Russia. And, you know, despite his, you know, what we spoke about, his sort of ethnicity, some of his bizarre um, past proclamations and the, 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 you know, just the fact that there's no dead man switch, right, Conrad? Like, no leaks have come out. No one's leaking DMs. Prigozhin probably had the most dirt on almost anybody in the Russian, uh, in the Kremlin, in the military, in uh, amongst all these circles that you know he rode around in, whether it be as a restaurant appointee or I mean, he literally had you know tons of you know, millions of you know, tons of cocaine, uh, all these various things at his place. So he was definitely involved somehow in the criminal underworld of Elise Petersburg, and he had there's no dead man switch, and he just passed away. So exactly what's going on with we're not sure but um but yeah he, he's definitely going down as this bizarre anti-hero type in, in russian history that's for sure this is just in from rai novosti putin says wagner made a significant contribution to the fight over nazis against nazism in ukraine we will never forget prigozhin was a man of difficult fate but talented he said this while expressing condolences to the families of those who died in the plane crash i believe it was he was simultaneously meeting with uh pushilin so uh that's a that's hot in off the presses so i wonder if you have any if you have a take on that and i also want to hear in general before we move on to some of the latest announcements in the smo zone and then bricks i want to hear what do you think what's the future of wagner at all well yeah i think wagner essentially well there is this talk and we are hearing these snippets of news essentially from belarus that wagner is leaving belarus or maybe there's some movement but i do think there's a huge benefit if at least a portion of wagner could remain in belarus continue to train the belarusian troops i mean that plan i think is still active i, I don't think anybody has thrown out the window the possibility of wagner moving from the north you know if once the smo has escalated and actually taking Agostomel or at least assaulting uh chernigov or some of those regions or even western ukraine right there is that um uh Suvalki Corridor angle and of course Poland I think all of that is still very much in play all right just uh, just because Utkin and Prigozhin are taken out just doesn't really mean that these plans can't go ahead and they're not still in place and of course uh, uh, Dmitry Pushilin, um his uh, there is a lot of crossover between DNR, LNR, and Wagner. Actually, a lot of a lot of the volunteers from the various uh, brigades and battalions of DNR and LNR actually um, were either in Wagner or were in Wagner at one point and joined Donetsk and Lugansk. So there is a lot of interchangeability. In fact, to the point where 
even Pavel Guborov, one of the few people who actually met Dmitry Utkin, and even from mutual friends, he just said that Dmitry Utkin is a very honorable, brave, and very talented commander who, you know, he wasn't maybe a talented commander early on, but for literally 30 years of military service has risen to the rank of colonel, and in fact is a very, you know, just a really good commander who loves his troops and actually leads from the front by example. So that's Pavel Guborov, the ex-governor of Novorossiya, right, who sat in Ukrainian prison, he's still active, one of the foremost supporters of Strelkov and the Angry Patriots Club today. So his opinion, of course, is very high of Dmitry Utkin, and it kind of does show that link between his connections, Donetsk, and Wagner. So I think, and again, Wagner did free Bakhmut and Solidar and all these regions, which are essentially parts of the Donetsk People's Republic, right? At least that particular oblast, so the, the Donetsk oblast. So in fact, these are lands that belong to the Donetsk people, not the various neo-Nazis and other Zog clans who have taken over at this moment and are essentially... Uh, just sitting there, kind of biding their time. So I, I, I suppose it is somewhat, somewhat coincidental that Putin has met with Pushilian, and you know we'll just see how how that goes. But Putin's comments, I think, very appropriate at this time. People need some surety. They need to make sure that Putin needs to show that look, these people are heroes. If anything, like pos posthumous awards of heroism, even. And, you know, that would show and, you know, maybe even a public memorial and an orthodox one, especially for the practicing members of the fallen people of this tragedy, that would go a really long way showing solidarity a national unity behind this particular tragedy and the fact that, look, the Russian people are not divided. And in fact, uh, we, we can go forward from this and take in new lessons, actually improve our security, improve whatever holes we have, whatever, you know, reckless negligence there was at the Shinomitiba airport and actually uh, gain something from this. We, you know, we gain essentially these new secular national uh, heroic martyrs of sorts, you know, and they should be raised on, on, on our banners and carried forward, you know, to victory. I think that's the my main message, and hopefully Putin's taking this on board. I think he probably is based on what you just said, uh, just breaking news, right? And in that speech, Putin basically said that the investigation is, is going on. It's going to take time to learn <clears throat> details about the plane crash. I'm not... I don't know, maybe if he was trying to really assuage himself or, you know, kind of distance himself from any kind of association, he might have come out in a furious, angry speech. I haven't seen a video of this address, so I can't I can't judge it necessarily. But he does, obviously, he can't be too mad because there is still the perception in Russia that Prigozhin was this mutineer. So I guess the sort of magnanimous, hey, respect to, to Wagner, uh, thank them for their fight. He expressed that he knew Prigozhin since the 90s, so he sort of, you know, paid tribute to their relationship, I guess. So that seems to be where we are right now. We're going to keep you updated. Be sure to follow World War Now underscore on Twitter and World War Now Tele on Telegram. We're right on top of this, getting some of the fastest updates, translating things from Russian as fast as possible. But unless you have anything else you want to say about this, Suravikin, maybe the situation in Africa and how it could be affected in all of this, I'm ready to move on to some of the crazy announcements from Medvedev and the National Security Council of Russia. Yeah, I think just besides the fact that Ukraine has also been active the past two days, they've been uh, sort of jumping over the Dnieper, so the Ukrainian, their, their, their version of the airborne elites, or essentially what's left of them since the Soviet times, have attempted to um, cross the Dnieper uh, via airplane drops, and essentially just Ukraine is really trying to push Russia from all angles. So the assault continues. Of course, Zaporozhye, Russian defenses are standing strong, but Ukraine, of course, attacking from the southwest along the Dnieper River. 
trying to cross on the Kherson end, and Russia essentially just holding its positions. Ukraine really, I mean, you'll you'll see news that Ukrainian commanders have crossed the Dnieper, but these are small groups, and they really haven't. They're not able to hold much territory. They don't have the armor. They don't have the trenches. They don't have the defensive fortifications on the Russian side of the Dnieper to hold those positions for very long. So even if they do take territory, it's it's only it's temporary, so to speak. But again, uh, the status quo remains. Russia, of course, uh, taking slight territorial gains up north and around Donetsk, Zaporozhye. But again, it's it's very much very stagnant. And the Ukrainian military is being churned through, as as you know, we'll mention Colonel McGregor's interview of uh, Tucker Carlson later. But he, essentially, his words are essentially what's happening right now, which is uh, the Ukrainian military and you know, Western taxpayer dollars are being wasted. But uh, the Security Council, absolutely gigantic news. Dmitry Medvedev, uh, f- former president, prime minister of Russia, now the secretary of the, um, oh, sorry, the I believe is the chairman of the Security Council of the Russian Federation, which essentially is this uh, elite, uh, essentially this elite body in the, in the Russian Federation responsible for, it seems to be military as well as domestic foreign policy matters, but mostly they describe, they just discuss very serious things. So it's just uh, sort of like a round table, like the King Arthur's Knights, essentially. And, you know, we have uh, Sir Lancelot, which is Dmitry Medvedev, and Putin, King Arthur. I'm not sure who Merlin is, probably Alexander Dugan, but he's not on the council. Instead, we have um, the secretary, uh, and Atroshov, so the former uh, former chief of the FSB, Putin's longtime uh, FSB friend, and of course Dmitry Medvedev straight up saying that look, Russia is going to Russia is going to escalate very drastically if if certain conditions are met. So what exactly did uh, Medvedev comment on, uh, Conrad? Like, I mean, and and how is this different from the stuff he's been saying before? Well, the National Security Council of Russia, of which Medvedev is one of the top members, I believe he's the deputy secretary, so I guess second in command. They've basically announced that the goal of the special military operation is the complete dismantlement of the Ukrainian regime, including the possibility of like complete occupation of all of the Ukrainian territory. So at the very least, I think we can confidently say that, you know, with us, we've been, you know, we've been longtime Odessa heads, you know, we've never backed down from that opinion. I think very much vindication on that front, despite, you know, some, some hiccups and some, you know, again, the whole era where Putin basically revealed to us that, that was never the original intention, which, you know, oh well, but we bet on the arc of history and the will of God, not the not the will and prognostications of politicians and people scheming and whatnot. But in general, it does seem that, I mean, this also comes about, we'll talk about, he also has announced that there's the possibility of integrating Abkhazia and South Ossetia into Russia, which for those that don't know, are the breakaway republics of Georgia that are, you know, kind of came into relevance in the 2008 war between Russia and Georgia and are the main source of the the lack of diplomatic relations between the two orthodox countries that share a border in the Caucasus. But it seems that this, you know, Medvedev, the NSC of Russia, these are pretty major decision-making centers when it actually comes to the SMO and the war itself. This is probably more relevant than the Duma itself, you know, second only to, you know, Kremlin and the Ministry of Defense. But it's obvious that there will be a lot more territory, I believe, taken both by force and I think the goal is to take even more by by treaty and negotiation, like get as much as they can without even having to to fight for it, perhaps hold more referendums. This is the kind of thing, again, it's the same things we saw in Crimea and Donetsk back in the day with these sorts of independence referendums and then the referendums to join Russia. And now we're going to maybe see that expanded. I believe Kharkov, Dnipropetrovsk, the rest of Zaporozhye, Kharkov, Kherson, and Donetsk, of course, I think are going to be taken 
specifically probably in February when another operation starts. But I think there's reason to expect even more than that now that this has all been said. Of course, it depends on when the West or Ukraine want to come to the negotiating table. As far as I can tell, the West seems to have told Ukraine that they need to send all of their forces and all of the equipment that they've been sent to the Zaporozhye front, which apparently is going against, I guess, the operational understanding and the wishes of the actual Ukrainian commanders. So I don't know exactly how they're going to respond to that. I think, again, they've gained barely any territory with tens of thousands dead. So it seems to me that it's only a matter of time before the Russians really start their push. I think up until February, we're just going to see slow pushes towards places like Kupyansk, perhaps some slow pushes outside Donetsk City to give some relief. But I think February is probably when we're going to be seeing some big pushes in that direction. But when it comes to Georgia, I don't even know. I mean, it seems that that's in retaliation to continued agitation in Georgia in the Caucasus from the U.S. It seems, I think, that this is even a response to some weakness now that Ukraine fatigue is kicking in in the West. Ukraine is not winning at all, despite the massive support. You know, the U.S. is still giving major support, but even major Ukrainian supporters in the West have effectively said that Ukraine needs to be prepared to cede major territory to Russia. So if that's been said now from the major patrons in the West, perhaps Russia feels confident enough to flex itself in Georgia and turn Georgia into a headache for the West that they now have to put energy into, as opposed to the original plan, which was the West to make Georgia a headache for Russia to distract them from Ukraine. It seems that maybe it's kind of turned around. Yeah, that's right. And maybe it's just Russia's Russia's also anticipation for the upcoming Georgian election in October 2024. Again, a lot of elections are coming up in 2024. It's going to be a crazy year, especially the back end. And so in October, you have the Georgian parliamentary election next year. And of course, there's this consideration that, at least in Georgian history, whenever US advisors and international UN observers have come a lot earlier to the Georgian parliamentary elections in order to assist them in the voting, right? locally. Usually the, the the winners of this particular um, election are usually uh, those who are more US aligned. It just so happens that they're more NATO aligned. And this has been uh, spoken about by several uh, conservative Georgian politicians, you know, some associates of Maxim Shevchenko on YouTube just commented that, 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 you know, that's just what happens. And in fact, the Georgian, these observers have already arrived in Georgia. So in fact, maybe uh, Dmitry Medvedev was given us quick brief as to, okay, this is what's happening in Georgia. It's uh, just over a year, the, the election is going to take place. So we do need to um, maybe throw in a couple of threats regarding uh, North and South Ossetia. Of course, we understand Ossetians. We spoke about this on an episode maybe 30, um, you know, 30 weeks back, but Ossetia is a very pro-Russian region, whereas uh, Abkhazia is a more kind of selfish, um, maybe more separatist type region, if we can even call it that officially. Ossetians, of course, recognize themselves as a separate people to begin with, somewhat related to Georgians, but not exactly. They're more akin to perhaps um, more like the Chechen Avar people of the Caucasus with their unique uh, necessarily identity. But Medvedev's completely right. Look, if Georgia continues to, for all intents and purposes, chimp out, South Ossetia is definitely a target, considering its population is incredibly pro-Russian. And I don't mean a, a target in a military sense. In fact, they could even have an open referendum with uh, Russian slash Georgian oversight, and they could decide for themselves to whether they would like to be members of the Russian Federation, which has you know a vast amount of small minority peoples, and who of which Ossetians will simply be one of. 
or they could retain remain in Georgia, and I think that could that could resolve the issue amicably. But yes, all these smaller Orthodox nations around Europe and in the of course Georgia being in the Caucasus, uh, they don't have a very good relations with the Russian Federation. Not only due to its their Soviet past, but also just because of these these countries have aligned themselves with the EU and NATO, and so have in fact poison the well to begin with so the discussion always starts off on like a, a negative end because either you know these orthodox countries they view themselves as well potentially uh economic as well as military opponents rather than orthodox brothers first and foremost so that's always been the tension between modern russian georgian relations it has nothing to do really with historic russian imperial uh slash georgian relations because that really is out the window at this point especially after the bolshevik revolution i mean that's more or less a historical comment and segment which really is outside of the scope of anything we can discuss today but that's that's i think i think i'm kind of supportive of medvedev's comments here from the security council definitely positive russian influence in foreign policy and showing that russia you know this tragedy is occurring there's the smo still going on BRICS summit but russia can still have a presence on essentially on any end of its uh multipolar spectrum so you can still touch on any any one of its neighbors and essentially uh touch on some of the issues occurring there on the borders like you know, russia's not russia's not essentially focused in it's not honed in on one particular issue it can multitask and that's what great nations and great empires can do so it's a real civilizational um benefit i think that russia can do this to to this day Really, the great land empire having to interact in land conflicts with every people, you know, with the West, with Caucasians, with 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 Central Asians and Turkic peoples, with East Asians, and you know, with with you know Eskimo types out in the Far East and in Alaska. It's you know, it is a it is a vast civilization, of course, centered with its Christian European, you know, mega you know uh, mega majority. But when it comes to Abkhazia, South Ossetia, remember. North Ossetia is a much bigger province of the Ossetian people in Russia already. South Ossetia is the southern part of that in Georgia. Abkhazia, of course, is actually the, you know, you kind of see what's almost like the panhandle of Georgia along the Black Sea. That's that's Abkhazia. And as far as relations, they, again, they're less slightly less pro-Russian, you could say. They have attempted to establish their own independent church, independent of the Georgian Orthodox Church, and Patriarch Kirill has rejected recognizing their clergy. Remember, the only diplomatic relations that exist between Georgia and Russia are entirely on the church side. Patriarch Ilya, the most beloved and trusted figure in all of Georgia, is the only person, the only official that travels to Russia on any kind of quote-unquote official Georgian basis, you know, and he negotiates a lot of the things on their behalf. And in many ways, because of the aggression by the West, I mean, even the head of, what is it, the Georgian Dream Party, who is the somewhat Georgian Nationalist Party, they've expressed extreme frustration with the West and their attempt to goad them into war with Russia, accept LGBT stuff, all these things, because they're, you know, tempting them. They have all these NGOs set up there to try to get them in the European Union and all these other things. So it's, uh, it, it's possible that Russia could, uh, you know, maybe negotiate with these territories with Georgia to possibly lead to a a more independent status and drive out the sheer level of of NATO influence because remember Russia has you know troops and peacekeepers just south of Georgia in the whole Armenia Azerbaijan situation so it's very much a dynamic situation but unless you have anything else you want to say about Georgia I want to brief something that I think is somewhat similar with Abkhazia and South Ossetia I want to make sure people are aware of the move now for Gogazian independence and for those who don't know Gogazia is a region of Moldova, it's basically Transnistria light, but Turkish mode. 
It's like pro-Russian Turks, you know, kind of Tatar-esque people who live, and it's right on the border with Ukraine. It's actually the primary border region with Ukraine and the, like, Odessa region, with uh, Moldova and the Odessa region of Ukraine. And they, this is the chairman of the Gagazian General Assembly. They're, like, semi-autonomous. They have their own kind of rule, much different than the rest of Moldova. Like I said, much more similar to Transnistria, even. And the chairman of the Gagazian General Assembly, Dmitry Konstantinov, has called for a general congress of all Gagazian elected officials on September 9th, where the Gagazians will discuss a possible independence declaration from the Republic of Moldova. And that's, you know, that would lead to, that would make, you know, kind of the, you know, that's not directly connected to Transnistria, but it would basically mean that, you know, the border with Ukraine and Moldova is more in the hands of these pro-Russian-esque separatist forces than it actually is in the hands of the, you know, Western puppeteering Moldovan government who, you know, are trying to get into NATO, who are doing all these sorts of things. So it's it's a big deal. And again, they're more Turkic kind of people and everything. But it's, uh, yeah, it's this big, uh, it's this thing. And who knows if Russian forces are behind the, uh, are behind this move in Gagazia. Obviously, I think the West won't be happy that one of their potential you know, inductees into NATO and potentially, you know, the European Union, you know, is now balkanizing more so, but it's it's a pretty interesting development to say the least. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it's potentially just another sort of throwback of Russia trying to, you know, re- regain dominance in some of these areas, which essentially it freed from Turkish Ottoman occupation all those centuries ago in the early 1800s. And the Gagazian people, if you read about their history, essentially these people were saved from, I guess, what you would call uh, Ottoman slavery in the in the region known as Bessarabia in the past. But uh, this particular region was saved by heroes such as uh, you know, Fyodor Ushakov by sea and uh, Alexander Suvorov and some of these legendary Russian commanders during the reign of Paul I, uh, Catherine the Great, etc., who fought against the Turks. And the Gagazian people were settled in these lands and kind of they, they got to really relax and build up their culture here thanks to the peace granted by the Russian Empire since pushing back the Ottoman Turks. So in fact, their history doesn't go back any further than, say, the mid-1700s, and that just needs to be taken into consideration here. So I, I, I think it's... Uh, and of course, Moldovans don't see it that way. Of course, they see themselves as a more ancient type of people, uh, and whether or not this Galgazian move for independence will be more of a more of an internal um, move, you know, to bring some of them, some more of those semi-Transnistrian type peoples into proximity of Russian influence. That'll uh, that that kind of remains to be seen. Of course, I'm more than welcome those kind of moves. I think in any sort of small Orthodox country, at least, or at least uh, those related, even you know, they mostly there are a lot of Muslims amongst its population that you know granted, but I think there's some benefit to be had from them aligning themselves more with Russia rather than the European Union and NATO, which you know, for, you know, we spoke about this more in depth before, but they bring around all, all this cultural nonsense, which essentially is installed from the top down. And it infects the social strand, which you know, essentially the, the, the people are negatively affected on the, from the from the top down, essentially. Uh, yeah. So there is that consideration that uh, the Galgazians simply are, it's, it's not simply a political move. It's more like just the people themselves want to align themselves with Russia more than the West. So it could be, could be very much a popular movement, which is simply reflected in some of its local political leadership rather than the political leadership seeking some sort of enrichment from aligning himself with, uh, shall we call the more conservative Eastern Bloc 
in many ways, the Eastern Bloc is not richer than NATO and the EU are much richer than Russia is at the moment. I think nobody's even going to argue that. So it's not a discussion about money. It's a discussion about what is best for the people on the ground. Yeah. And again, this would lead to a big sort of, again, it wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to be resupplied by Russia. Again, Transnistria has already kind of been left out to dry on that regard. So it would be, uh, apparently the Gagazian Republic, you know, was a thing in 1991 to 1994 during the sort of time where Moldova fought its wars. It was more peacefully, you know, integrated into, you know, into Moldova, despite having its very much autonomous status. But, you know, if there's any kind of you know, if they have to resist by force, unfortunately, it does. They probably wouldn't stand a chance against a Western-backed Moldova. But it's interesting to say the least. You know, we we've always kept an eye on Transnistria. Now that this is happening, maybe that'll bring that back into the forefront. But with all of that, it's time to talk about BRICS. The summit is going on. It's uh, it seems that you know it's gone well. There's been I saw a few hiccups with I believe the South Africans like closed the door and like prevented one of Xi's translators from following him. It was kind of an awkward moment. I also thought that the tribal dance that greeted Lavrov was totally lame, but you know, that's neither, that's neither here nor there. I think uh, the big story is that it's been announced that I guess BRICS will has extended an invitation to six new countries. Uh, those countries being Saudi Arabia, Iran, Egypt, Argentina, the United Arab Emirates and Ethiopia who will be effectively, you know, I, I guess those countries may have to vote and there may be whole legislative processes for their kind of alliances they have to do on their own end. But from the BRICS member perspective, they are, you know, they've been allowed to become members and start the process of becoming members. And this is big because I believe India had expressed a lot of doubts about actually expanding the block. Is that correct, Dimitri? Yeah, of course. And I think what kind of pushed India into accepting was, of course, the just the uh, the sort of kind attitude between uh, the relationship between China and India has been rocky. But in 2023, you know, it has been somewhat amicable compared to previous years. So I do think that, and I'm not sure who exactly was responsible for these two countries coming to agreement, but whoever it was, you know, it's it's, it's sort of a great move in diplomacy. I think it's also the consideration, globally speaking, that look, uh, Europe is realigning, new members are joining NATO, and, you know, BRICS isn't a military alliance of any sort. It's more economic and trade-related, of course, and there is this talk of CBDCs, you know, a move away from fiat, local currencies, uh, moving away from the petrodollar. There's all these big theories in the background running um, running a mock essentially stating that well what are the ultimate goals what is the ultimate goal of BRICS but it does seem like it is an alternative to some of these more Western aligned structures right and you know it, it is it is very much welcome that some some of these new nations have joined and I think if anything Conrad I, I found it very interesting that we did have a lot of these um, countries from the Hijaz and some of these Arab aligned countries these huge oil producers like Saudi Arabia and um, the United Arab Emirates actually gaining membership i think that's uh, tremendous it's almost like a new opec essentially and of course we recall opec like what was opec's major uh, thing in like the 1960s was its opposition to israel <laughs> and israel is not in bricks so it is this interesting angle of um you know which might come up later in future discussions once you know the middle east is agitated a little bit more as it always is uh by some of these uh, local foreign political um uh, decision makers over there but <laughs> It is a little bit bizarre that you know some of these, uh, I guess, leading OPEC countries have in fact joined BRICS, and maybe it is a move away from the petrodollar—a huge victory, not just for lover of Russia, China, India, but but also for some of the smaller members, and also those new members actually beginning the sort of uh, ascension process 
And in fact, look, it's I mean, I mean, it's scheduled to take place within four months, right? Before the first of January. So, I mean, that's a pretty quick process. And we've seen discussions of you know Sweden and Finland. How long did they have to fight to get into NATO? And gr granted, right, NATO is a defensive alliance, so perhaps there's more there's difficult considerations there of borders and the fact that Russia's right there and Russia's fighting a war and there's all these um you know it, it it does seem a little bit more serious, but still that's. A, Quite a quick exception rate, I, I think, and the scheduling is, you know, it's pretty good. I guess we'll find out next year, but yeah, ex exceptional prospects for the future of multipolarity in in the world, I would say. Yeah, I think part of the India-China thing is I think India's very much noticed the pr pressure the U.S. is putting on it culturally, economically, you know, geostrategically, and they're they're not responding well. And that's not to say that they're mellowing on China, but they aren't going to, at the very least, they aren't going to escalate on the United States' terms. And I think that they, if anything, they, they would rather, they even see the possibility of, you know, trying to outcompete with China for some of Russia's influence. Because India buys a lot of military equipment from Russia. They always have. And now they're really, uh, they've been playing the game with the West to try to shirk the, you know, the oil caps and everything. And I think they've kind of abandoned a lot of that. I believe, you know, Jay Shankar, one of the members of Modi's government, he recently had an interview with, I think, Alexander Mercurius and somebody else recently, so he's very much plugged into the the world of multipolarity. And I think, in general, there's been some. Again, I don't want to comment on this too much. It's very controversial in like Christian circles, and I don't really want to, you know, really muddy the waters on that with too much politics. But there's obviously a lot of this. We've seen more and more of the escalation in rhetoric about this Hindu terrorism and a lot of this disgusting activity being carried out by some of these gangs in these towns in certain parts of India. I think there is some there is legitimate Christian persecution. I believe there has always been persecution of Muslims as well in parts of India by these Hindu groups. However, as you know, Muslim terror has kind of waned as one of the main boogeymen, and we're seeing a surge in like the kind of Christian, the anti-Christian stuff and whatnot. I think it would make sense that if you're trying to agitate against Modi, who's you know a more multipolar nationalist leader, you it wouldn't it would make sense to appeal to a Western audience to have this. Christian persecution by these Hindus amplified. Obviously, I don't necessarily think Modi is calling for it, but obviously the people that would be persecuting these atrocities would be more aligned with the Hindu nationalist parties of which Modi represents. So that's obviously a big factor, and they're going to be taking note of that as well. Of course, Pakistan has had the whole Imran Khan thing occur, and they're watching that next door as well. I mean, the U.S. just completely disallowed the most popular political leader by far in Pakistan from being in politics. He's, you know, been arrested and he's not allowed to be in politics for, was it like a decade or something like that? So a very much Trumpian situation, which we're going to talk about in a second. But obviously we, there's the whole BRICS currency stuff. That's going to be a thing that I think is more long-term. But in general, D-dollar, Putin has, you know, pushed de-dollarization to the forefront. Whereas I think we've seen even Indian officials kind of try to be more moderate on their prognosis for the future of BRICS. But it wasn't just, you know, these six countries that got allowed in. It was also a huge delegation of other countries were there. You know, there were North Koreans there. There were all sorts of Africans there. It was it was pretty crazy. I think I saw a picture of the, one of the North Korean delegates just holding a gun to his head at some, like, weapons demonstration or something like that. It was pretty interesting. But... Yeah, I mean, this summit, I mean, there may be a few more things to come. I think it's probably it's wrapping up pretty soon here now that the time of this recording. Putin obviously didn't appear in person. I, I think it may not have even entirely been, you know, some of it has to do with the ICC and whatnot, but also some of it has to do with, in general, while Putin wants to make a big splash at BRICS, 
I don't necessarily think the Ramaphosa government is who Putin wants to be the face of BRICS and wants to be necessarily the number one ally of Russia as multipolarity moves forward. So that, combined with the ICC stuff, I think was a good enough reason for him to just send Lavrov. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, just general commentary. Um, I, I did notice a post from, funny enough, of Father Andrei Tkachev, like the most popular priest probably online at the moment in terms of actual views and it, definitely in the Russian language. And he actually mentioned the fact that, well, this BRICS summit, funny if you see this popular priest sort of commenting on geopolitics and multipolarity, but he did say that, uh, you know, the BRICS summit does have good prospects for orthodoxy and the spreading of orthodox influence to some of these other nations. He says that, yeah, essentially it's a lot harder to evangelize based on his experience in former Christian countries, which were at, which at one point had orthodox Christianity, for example, European countries, or even, or even former orthodox countries such as, well, not former, but uh, countries where, say, orthodoxy is still dominant in some regard. For example, Bulgaria, Romania, and Greece are the three that he mentioned. And he said that, look, he says that, well, it's not up to Russia to reignite the fire of orthodoxy in these particular nations. They have to do it themselves because, look, uh, yes, there, there was communism. Yes, there was liberalism. But Russia, essentially, it's not on Russia to go into these countries and teach them about about the teachings of the church. They have their own saints. They have their own local autonomous autocephalous jurisdictions. And he did say that Russia needs to spread orthodoxy to places such as South Africa, India, China, and do it a lot more actively. And in fact, the BRICS might be might be a way of orthodoxy essentially being represented upon this council of very and very shall, shall we say pious countries in their own way in their own religions for example even ethiopia right being ascended like that is and you know we'll probably comment i mean well at one point we'll maybe speak to dean arnold as to exactly what this would mean for the future of the ethiopian people but 120 million people in ethiopia 90 i mean like a huge percentage of them are essentially oriental orthodox christians which it's not the same as the eastern orthodox church which we belong to of course of conrad but they are very much still extremely conservative to the point where western countries would simply view them as far right you know fascists or something like they are just that conservative in ethiopia and if you and that kind of counterbalances again with uh, say the kingdom of saudi arabia which is very strongly in the you know that hijaz region very strongly muslim essentially you have mecca and medina joining BRICS, right so there's huge consideration there and of course not only are the sunnis represented but the shia as well of the islamic republic of iran which essentially a is a theocracy right so we have kingdoms theocracies these are giga chad black christian countries joining um you know ethiopia very poor country but you know has a lot of potential and in fact if anything is a country that's rising out of the rubble of the 20th century so that's that's a consideration we have smaller countries like united arab emirates which are incredibly rich argentina i don't have too much too much thoughts on that only that argentina the politicians heart do seem to be west aligned so it is a little bit interesting but then again brazil has also had very similar sort of positions in the past so and brazil is a founding BRICS member and of course egypt egypt uh you know, one the once opponent of Israel, now it's uh, essentially kind of defanged, uh, castrated neighbor. Again, especially after the recent revolution, it's just kind of uh, a little bit, um, yeah, just very interesting. Just how many Muslim countries have joined BRICS, and you know, it'll be interesting. Well, think about Egypt. Who, what country gets the second most foreign aid from America after Israel? That's Egypt, of course. And why is that? It's basically just a bribe to Egypt to prevent them from taking out Israel. Obviously, they already got the Sinai Peninsula back. You know, in the war they fought against Israel, of course. But then, 
you know, they could have taken more, basically, and Egypt has one of the most powerful militaries in the region. And, of course, they... But it's interesting that they've both been allowed into BRICS because Egypt and Ethiopia have this big dispute about the Nile River. Ethiopia is wanting to uh, grand their, uh, you know, their Grand Nile Dam. They have plans to actually start filling their reservoir, damming the Nile soon at their fast at this very fast rate, which would drastically affect the water levels up in Egypt, which is an extremely completely dependent on the Nile you know, for all of their water needs. So it's interesting. Maybe some of those issues could get worked out in a more multipolar forum with, you know, China and Russia as negotiators because, you know, both of those countries have very <coughs> close ties with all of, with those both respective nations. And of course, Argentina is interesting because we see Javier Malay. He's been this character, you know, kind of rocketed into the spotlight here after he got 30% in the first round of primary elections in Argentina coming first, beating out both the center-right and center-left. You know, the sort of Peronist center-left who I think are generally aligned against the NATO Atlantic bloc, which is why I think this is happening with BRICS. And then the more center-right, you know, opposition. And then this anarcho-capitalist Javier Malay who wants to replace the Argentine currency with the U.S. dollar, abolish the central bank, hates LGBT people, uh, apparently is like a tantric sex instructor, and wants to... Uh, and uh, he, uh, he's, he's, he's surging in the polls. He could very much be Argentina's next president, but he very much, I think, would not... He would probably reverse this Argentina BRICS decision. So we'll kind of see where that goes. He's an interesting... An interesting character, kind of. He's trying to kind of ape Pinochet. He's trying to. He's called the Wig. He's very Trumpian, in a lot of ways. That viral video of him screaming about leftards was doing the rounds recently. But he loves Israel. I think he talked about wanting to convert to Judaism. So he may be interesting. He may be funny. But he is very much not our guy. So we're we're going to watch that closely. I think Argentina is a fascinating country. Any Argentine listeners comment? I want to learn about. Argentina, I think it's an interesting place from, I like the Falklands War, you know, Antarctica, there's all sorts of interesting things going on down there. So Argentine listeners, tap in. But before we move on to talking about uh, some other stuff in India, I was wondering with BRICS, uh, I saw it was, people are kind of thinking about what is the new, uh, the new acronym for BRICS going to be? People say BRICS plus these days, but was it Tom on Twitter? He had posted, Rusi is back, kind of spelled in a funny way. But I think that misses the opportunity for Bussy Race. B-U-S-S-I-E-R-A-I-C-E. I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm joking, of course. It's really, really, it's, maybe this is a really terrible joke. But I thought a Bussy Race was pretty funny if you're going to actually be taking this, uh, this, al- this, uh, this acronym to its conclusion. Obviously, they may just change the name entirely to, from being an acronym. Who knows? Yeah, I think uh, some other considerations that also need to be made in, in this entire BRICS debacle. And I think it's more a bit relevant this week because later on this will be fleshed out slightly. But notice the absolute ignorance of Turkey. It's, Turkey is not a member of the EU, and now it's not a member of BRICS, nor is it being you know, brought into ascension. In fact, Turkey almost gets bypassed, and in a way, it's almost like the big power players, Modi, Z, and as well as Putin, are showing that you know, they're kind of bullying Erdogan and saying, look, buddy, you have to either choose the West or you choose us, right? There's no, like, you can't just play both sides. And the same thing with Macron. Macron just simply wasn't invited to the summit, despite actually being, you know, being a nuclear power and having all this influence in Africa, and the, you know, France just simply not receiving the invitation and in fact it was being it was either declined or completely ignored and extremely powerful and you know me, medium term uh, speculation regarding what this could 
bring about would, of course, be a potential shared currency amongst these countries. Maybe a, I'm not sure, it could, could potentially be a fiat. Maybe they'll be trading in the yuan. I'm not particularly sure. Not particularly sure. Definitely not the ruble, considering how badly the ruble has been operating. But it is potentially a move away from the US dollar. That's what everybody seems to be talking about, right? Especially for uh, international trade. Maybe not domestic trade. So, so, for example, the yuan, the ruble, they'll be still used in their respective countries. But for international trade, will the US dollar still be the standard? And that's, I think, the main question. And that's what the US probably fears, especially with Saudi Arabia joining and that whole historical controversy with you know, that really lucrative deal, the petrodollar agreement with the Saudis. Of the Saudi Kingdom, which has catapulted the you know, in the United States' economy, essentially gave it the second, essentially the second rise in the 20th century, and um, I think that's definitely a big expansion point. You know, the last comment on Argentina, you know, expansion into South America in general is almost like this. It's almost like Eurasia is sh shaking the hand of its uh, South American brother all the way over there on the on the flat Earth. You know, essentially saying, "Look, you know, Brazil's a member, but more of you guys can come over here as well." And it is, I think, it's generally positive, regardless of how if Argentina ends up joining or not. It's just the fact that BRICS has shown the option. It's like not just powerful, large Brazil it can be a member, but also a smaller Argentina can also join. So I, I think generally this is, a think, a positive thing. But definitely let's keep a lookout for any news regarding US dollars trade between uh, the BRICS member states and if they'll be using the you know, the United States dollar in future transactions. Or will there be discussions about something bizarre like cryptocurrency or God knows? Um, yeah, we'll definitely be on the lookout for those sort of news. And you guys should too. Definitely follow us on the social medias because we usually post about these things prior to speaking about them on the weekly show. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned Turkey kind of getting boxed out. It's really important analysis because what's also happening in the midst of the BRICS summit is Russian jets are pounding Turkish proxies in Syria. So it's very much, and it's, it, it also comes at the time though when Russia is also expelling French influence from Africa. And we're, we even mentioned France as a suspect in the Prigozhin thing, but the French expulsion of Africa also benefits Turkey because France and Turkey are major, you know, France is Turkey's main geopolitical enemy in the West due to their you know, a lot of their competing interests and historical ties. So Russia is having to balance, you know, helping to helping and hurting two of their enemies at different points here. And, you know, you're right with uh, South America. I think it's also important to recognize, though, that Russia would really benefit, in my opinion, from looking into the genuine right wing nationalist oppositions in these countries, not just going back to propping up the geriatric, you know, chauvistic, socialist, communist, you know, brown people, who just are, you know, have the grievances against colonialism, like all these sorts of, you know, that's kind of what Lula represents in Brazil. That's, of course, kind of what Maduro represents in Venezuela. You see these same forces propped up in places like Bolivia, even Nicaragua, which Russia has a huge collaboration with Nicaragua and everything. And look, I'm not pro the Roman Catholic Church per se. I do believe that there's perhaps cases where Vatican officials should be, you know, investigated by the state for corruption, but I don't necessarily believe that the Nicaraguan government is right to just be openly arresting Catholic bishops and things like that, which of course is probably not the best look if Russia wants to be this, you know, kind of conservative religious leader around the world. I think they would be, they would benefit from finding slightly different ideological partners in South America, but that's all sort of a, a talk for future BRICS meetings, right? You know, maybe they'll, they'll figure those things out. And yeah, with India and China being there with, with Lavrov and everybody, it's very much, 
it's very clear that Turkey, you know, Erdogan's going to have to continue to make these choices, and he's going to be forced to go one way or the other. And unfortunately, we believe the arc of history, you know, will ultimately put them on the side of the West, which will lead to a much greater conflict. And, you know, things are happening in that direction, whether it's in Syria, all sorts, again, the, the Black Sea being dominated by Russia, that's going to totally push the conflict down towards the Bosphorus and Dardanelles, because, I mean, we've already seen, I mean, we talked about this on our live stream on YouTube, the, you know, the Turks have had ships now stormed by the Russians. I mean, there's these shipping lanes in the Black Sea that are, the Russians are openly putting soldiers on them, pointing guns at the captains of these boats. You know, it's it's very much Russia's clamping down. So things are very much moving in the direction that we see it go. But before we start talking about a few things in the Balkans and Colonel McGregor, I want to just mention, of course, it's been all over the timeline, the India moon landing. People now believe that India, the space program of India, has landed on the moon, despite the obviously fake and CGI images they've put out. So I just, you know, all the people that hate on me for shitting on the space stuff and all of that, it's like, so you now believe that, you know, India's superpower 2024, you know, it's all here, you know, we, they've space future, poo and lose space futurism. I, I think it's just, it, <laughs> I just think people need to recognize that this thing is, it's the sort of... In the sense that there is a global conspiracy, it's sort of this peak kind of scientism, transhumanist future of, you know, there are cabals in each country of people that seek to perpetuate this 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 nonsense. And I think it's, uh, of course, it's always a big ploy for just more money. These space programs get a lot of money for supposedly high-level research, and who knows where all those things can go, right? I mean, NASA gets $93 million a day. Of course, a lot of that goes into the CGI to believe, have you believe the ISS and whatnot, but... Yeah, I just want to know, Faustian Space Bros, is is India, I guess they're Aryans, right? I mean, is India part of the, part of uh, based space futurism? I want to know. Well, speaking of based space futurism, Dmitry Rogozin, of course, received a lot of flack, actually, for, for leading Roscosmos into what was, I guess, what we can see as the recent biggest failure and probably the, the recent, I guess, large tragedy of the Lunar 25 allegedly crashing into the, into the moon itself, which, you know, was uh, was announced on Russian TV, and a lot of Russian political commentators have stated that this is essentially a, you know, this is the product of the Russian Federation's failure to adopt whatever successes. And again, it's just bizarre bias, right, Conrad? Because there's a theory that essentially the USSR had this amazing space program, which which had no accidents, but in fact, there were plenty of accidents which occurred, you know, allegedly, and so much money was wasted over the years, but the Russian Federation seemingly can't have one accident occur, and that's because the space program is very, so so far underdeveloped, so there's a lot of people looking for fa people to blame, and frankly, they're like, oh, how did this journalist and far-right politician, Dmitry Rogozin, actually, you know, get in charge of Roscosmos? This is obviously nepotism, and he screwed up the entire program. In fact, this is why Luna 25 crashed, and Luna 25 was being prepared since 2005, so that's what, 18 years wasted? 18 years of PhDs, funding, essentially you have people, engineering students, essentially engineering professors, all these, this entire industry um, just pr kind of working on this one project, and the project ends up going to nothing, and you know, this was probably the kind of like the, the bad local news in Russia prior to this Prigozhin airplane crash, which uh, essentially brought up a lot of discussion. And a lot of the uh, old Soviet heads, a lot of the boomers were saying, well, in the USSR, this wouldn't have taken place. Well, no, in fact, in the USSR, if, if you know, official record is to be believed, there was a lot more issues with any sort of space projects than simply this one particular crash. So in fact, in, if we're speaking about modern Russian incompetence, it's 
frankly, with the amount of resources Russia has now, like it really didn't spend that much compared to what the Soviets were throwing at this entire thing for years, you know, playing out the whole Cold War. It's a, it's a race to the moon psyop, right? Which ended up being an atheistic ploy anyway, because it was, well, it was that whole uh, Khrushchev game. So I don't know. This entire this entire Luna 25 thing ended up being a, an absolute an absolute psyop of sorts. And in fact, um, Alexander Dugin's quote, I think, fits fits almost perfectly. Just to paraphrase him, like <laughs> Alexander Dugin essentially from 2014 says that, you know, uh, essentially he doesn't like that Patriots focus too much on the moon. In fact, let, let me just bring up the quote real quick. Because I think the quote needs to be read out exactly right, and these are not my words, so to speak. These, are, of course, Dugan's words directly. So you know that's how they should be taken. This is all those years ago. Not to comment on all those people who allegedly worked on the Luna Twenty Five project, but this is more of a cultural comment. The leftovers from the Soviet regime, this like large, large scale distraction. So Dugan said. In 2014, the development of space travel is a godless and shameful thing. It's a This is a classic globalist utopia that anticipates the arrival of the Antichrist. Space is an illusion. It is necessary to be faithful to Christ and the Russian land. I do not approve of patri patriots flirting with modernization. It won't end well. I think where this stands is, in 2014, you have the Donetsk, Lugansk republics. So you have all these events going on in Russia. Russia isn't perfect. It's still growing. And in fact, you're wasting precious taxpayer money, precious money from all these resources and trade in, in order to do what exactly? Like, you know, but well, again, nothing, it seems, because, well, so, most of these projects don't necessarily work. And I think we're still, me and Conrad are still waiting for the fruits of all these very necessary and essential space programs, especially not just in the US and NATO, where you have like billions and billions being siphoned away, but also in countries like Russia, which Russia needs money more than any, anything directed into the right particular departments and they're in the right projects because Russia doesn't have the the luxury of the US dollar, the fiat currency and the Federal Reserve essentially printing infinite funds, right? That too. So that's that consideration. And I think Dugan's quote is completely on the nose, whether or not, um, you know, whether or not people believe in the space program or not, I think it should be considered that it is a major ideological distraction from what's happening on the ground. And it's also reflected in the fact that the saints never really spoke about space travel in general as being anything essential. Even recent elders have just never focused on this sort of thing. It's just kind of irrelevant to what's happening in reality. Yes, there is no salvation in space. We are here fixed at the center of God's creation under the beauty of his firmament. But we're getting kind of, you know, we're getting closer on time here. So we got to get through what we're going to talk about here, I think, with it's important to highlight, though, the fit, the the silliness of these space programs. I encourage everyone to look at old Soviet and even certain Chinese, you know, quote unquote footage of like moon and space missions. It's very, very laughable. But when it comes to, you know, things being launched into into space and launched, I mean, the North Koreans are being just as successful. They recently launched a missile all the way over Okinawa, which is very, very far to the south of North Korea. So, I mean, I think all the people in Okinawa were hiding missile alerts everywhere, crashed into the Pacific not too far away. So... The things are heating up in the Pacific as the U.S., you know, pledges to arm Taiwan. You know, Taiwanese officials visit New York City. It's getting, you know, China is very much pledging to retaliate in these regards. Uh, Xi Jinping is saying that the world is at a crossroads. So in Asia, things are very much heating up. In North Korea, you know, we haven't seen anything about their pledge to supposedly send 100,000 troops to Ukraine. But as things escalate, we're always going to be seeing where you know, where they will end up because they're this heavily militarized country that, you know, doesn't really take orders from anybody and they've 
very much been developing these missile systems. So we'll see if Japan and the U if you if the US uses the whole Japan thing and Taiwan to escalate against both China and North Korea. But I also want to talk about uh, recent comments made by Colonel McGregor. I clipped this. I'm actually going to, I'll briefly play the audio here. These are people with this agenda. And the agenda says until the entire world is garrisoned by U.S. forces and is converted forcibly to some form of democracy that we approve of, uh, the world will not be safe and we must continue to fight. And I think in the, in the case of Russia, Russia has special appeal because I think these people have ancestors who came from that region of the world and have a permanent axe to grind with the Russians, uh, which, of course, I don't. I don't think most Americans do, and nor do I think anybody in government should shape policy based on whatever unhappiness their ancestors you know, experienced in, in a place like Russia. So I, I, that's, a, that's a nutshell, but I think that's enough. And so like what you just heard was you know, Colonel McGregor interviewing, being interviewed by Tucker Carlson, and he uh, basically is talking about, he talked about all sorts of things in Ukraine, gets into the numbers on, the, on Ukraine's casualties, how they're totally failing along the front lines, and how Russia's effectively already won. And the most interesting part was, though, was he's asked about Victoria Newland, but he expands, and not just Victoria Newland, he basically takes on the entire State Department apparatus. And the fact that, you know, he doesn't say the word exactly, but he is referring to when those people that he's talking about and their ancestry and the fact that they have grievances, he's referring to, you know, specifically Ashkenazi Jews from the Pale of Settlement that was mostly in Belarus and Moldova and other parts across the Russian Empire, some in the south as well as, of course, the cities in many times had varying populations of, of Ashkenazim. So I think the fact that this is becoming such a normalized talking point as neoconservatism is brought into the fore. I mean, look, we saw almost every Republican candidate in the debate the other night pledge, you know, more support for Ukraine. Chris Christie, uh, Nikki Haley, these people went full neocon, full war with Russia, full, you know, war crime propaganda, straight up lies about the kidnapping of children in Russia and the execution of civilians, just total nonsense. And we're seeing kind of what is the root of this hysteria? Well, it comes from an established elite of people that, from an ethno-religious perspective, view Russia as their enemy. They have been ra they were raised in a community and family of people that ingrained in them this sense of you know ethnic animosity, and this is something that a military expert like Colonel McGregor, who's you know one of the foremost commentators on global geostrategy and military politics in general, he is going to pick up on this. Any honest commentator is going to have to talk about this. Does no one like no one bats an eye when we talk about the basic history of, you know, the disputes between Arabs and Persians, Iran's Iranians against Israel and these sorts of things. Like of course, why would the history of, you know, the hundreds of years together, you know, Schultzenitsyn wrote, you know, the two hundred years together with, you know, the Russians and the Jews, is this not going to be Something that then manifests in these broader civilizational disputes, especially after those people were given a state in a place that was historically influenced by the Russian Empire, by the Third Rome. I mean, it just, I think Colonel McGregor knows this. He may never say it as explicitly, but he's aware of the historic conflict between Christian Rome, you know, and faux Israel, fake Israel, you know, the, 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 the people that rejected Christ. And I think it's very important that someone like McGregor is bringing this to the fore. And, I mean, look, he still has publishing deals with the U.S. Navy, with, like, U.S. Navy Press. He's recently published his book. It was uh, 
was it five historic battles you know that changed the world of the 21st century i mean people should be sure to check that out i i'll be sure to get it myself but it's it's fascinating he's really bringing this to the fore tucker obviously didn't counter signal him he had a classic tucker reaction face but i think i think this is a very important uh development in rhetoric that we're seeing and i mean if mcgregor has political aspirations that's also very encouraging yeah, that's right. I think just being able to speak about it, even in a historical sense, as just these facts have taken place, whether or not there's any extra commentary on them is, of course, based on the particular person and context. But uh, I think it's exactly correct. And Tucker, the fact that Tucker didn't comment on it, I think, is even based on the fact that Tucker knew exactly what was being said. And it's just simply, you know, there is no disputing it. We're not even going to go down the rabbit hole, which was pretty based in and of itself. And I think Tucker definitely knows what's happening as a, as an educated American, you know, classical American man. I think classical education goes a long way. And in fact, Tucker definitely being around those sort of folks on the East Coast, it's, uh, yeah, it's somewhat unavoidable, uh, frankly. And for those of you who think this sort of, these sort of issues are irrelevant and the Pale of Settlement is irrelevant and all these historical gripes, I, I encourage you to, of course, try out the trial subscription on Substack, Substack, listen to some of the A4Hour episodes, kind of have a grasp of exactly what has occurred in the history of Russia or the history of the world, actually. We speak about many of these Orthodox countries and even various civilizations. And even there's even a specific episode on Israel, Palestine, and what exactly our position, what exactly the position of the church is on this particular land, right? Because there is a specifically Orthodox position on Israel. I mean, and to think that it's irrelevant to today's day or even irrelevant to what's happening in Ukraine. Well, the second richest man in Israel, uh, uh, Abramovich, was in Moscow for some reason just two days ago. Sadegard published this and you know, this has absolutely nothing to do with the whole Prigozhin situation. Surely not. You know, Abramovich surprisingly left on the weekend, uh, or even before the weekend on Monday. He left to go to Turkey. Now Abramovich right now is in Ankara speaking to some probably really high officials of, of Turkey discussing most likely the suspicion is either Putin coming to Ankara or Erdogan going to Sochi in order to discuss Russian-Turkish relations as well as the Grain Deal. So sort of planning it. So we have this Israeli slash Russian oligarch this uh person of you know dubious descent uh, who's essentially like a member of the kabbalah you know this uh, particular you know essentially a globalist working for the russian government essentially pushing russian interests and you know he's definitely a member of this particular group very relevant to today's geopolitical uh storyline and news and you know it's good to know the backstory of all of this mcgregor of course educating us so so well on it you know and of course bringing the subject up i think that's very important it's just we have to be aware of reality in order to somehow operate in it i think he also did an important rhetorical kind of turn of phrase where he distinguished these people and their ancestral grievance from americans themselves he's like i don't feel this way americans don't feel this way and that's true i wouldn't I mean, I personally don't consider these people that hold these grievances that happen to be in positions of power that identify this way. I don't consider them Americans. So I think any political movement that seeks to get them out of power and out of the reins of con away from the reins of control of the most powerful uh, military the world has ever known is is a very important thing. And I'm glad that McGregor is not only spreading the truth about Ukraine and everything going on there, but that aspect and how it's very much connected. But we're getting real tight on time here, Dimitri. We got to talk about the church. Hit us real quick with everything going on in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and how things are continue to escalate there. 
Well, of course, the first day of Transfiguration took place this Saturday, and in fact, um, it was a big deal because in Ukraine, of course, we all heard about the Transfiguration Cathedral being hit in Odessa, and so I think Metropolitan Onufri, the leader of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, alongside Metropolitan Agathangel of Odessa, actually chose to give this really big signal to the Ukrainian government that we are with you, Zelensky, we are with you, Vyakhovna Rada, we are with you, Poroshenko, etc., etc., and it was a very... I don't know, it was a little bit upsetting to me, but maybe some people will view it in a more dispassionate sense. But Metropolitan Anufri, Metropolitan Agathangel, as well as some of the other leading members of the Ukrainian Orthodox Synod, there was, a few, I believe, I think 10, over 10 bishops serving in one particular, on one particular feast day in Ukraine. And they gave a huge, and Metropolitan Anufri gave the mic to Metropolitan Agathangel, and he openly declared um, on the sermon after the after almost towards the closing of the liturgy before the kissing of the cross that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church looks towards its patriotic uh, Ukrainian attitude wishes to increase patriotism amongst its Ukrainian Orthodox flock and also stands united with the government and wants to break any of this idea that the church is somehow dissenting against the Ukrainian Orthodox sovereign state, the sovereign state of Ukraine. And this is, this of course was reflected, well, just yesterday on the 24th of August, when of course, Metropolitan Onufri uh, announced, you know, he congratulated everybody with happy independence, uh, you know, you know, the happy independence day Ukraine, 24th of August. So it's just a little bit distasteful considering the fact that so many bishops are now, in fact, not in Ukraine, those in Donetsk, Lugansk, and all these other regions, Crimea, essentially are still members of his particular autonomous jurisdiction, but they aren't necessarily in Ukraine. It just shows the sort of disunity. And again, um, that's probably the biggest news, just this solidarity, Metropolitan Onufri showing the solidarity with Zelensky, with the Ukrainian state. I'm not going to comment on this any further, but I think it's just the fact still stands. That's what the statement that was made. There, there are, of course, this, you know, Metropolitan Jonathan being imprisoned, Metropolitan Paul recovering from his uh, his heart attack after imprisonment. There's a lot of issues going on in terms of, you know, just hierarchs being, being essentially pressured into, you know, hierarchs having heart attacks, hierarchs having strokes, just a lot of pressure on the Ukrainian hierarchy in general. Yeah, it's just, uh, and of course, there's there's all, there's the other story of the local Ukrainian priest proudly donating his parish's money towards the purchasing of the Ukrainian military vehicles, like jeeps and things. It's just like you know, collecting money every Sunday and then suddenly announcing that look, we're going to give this money towards the Ukrainian troops. I mean, it's just it just is what it is. I'm I'm speaking about um you know one of the priests of Kiev, Father uh, well, it's probably a. Father Sergius, I won't mention his last name, but that's probably that's probably one of the most upsetting stories, given the fact, Conrad, that Ukraine, the Ukrainian parliament is now discussing the complete decriminalization and legalization of pornography production and distribution. So this is all happening while, of course, Ukraine is discussing cannabis legalization and you know pornography distribution. And of course, the retort, the retort to this would be, well, surely you understand pornography is legal in Russia. How can you say, well, no, it's just the fact that there is an active movement within the polit amongst these politicians to legitimize this degeneracy whereas in russia this degeneracy was le legitimized a little while ago not even under the putin government but under yeltsin and we all know who ruled under yeltsin's people like abramovich and Izilk. and in fact putin if anything has been slightly negligent in not shutting down this degeneracy like the fact that there's 10 to 15 gay clubs still open in moscow i mean you can google it it's just it's a little bit absurd right it flies in the face of this entire SMO being a, somewhat of a religious uh, military operation, which it isn't. And that's one of the main critiques. Nevertheless, there is that moral issue here where it's like, well, 
should a Ukrainian Orthodox person pray for the military victory of Ukraine, as is proposed by Metropolitan Agafangil of Odessa? Well, I don't know. Uh, should if because if Ukraine wins in the war, pornography will be decriminalized. So I don't know if that's a win. Um, and as well as you know, all kinds of parades and things like that, which we don't need to go into in detail. But that there is that moral conundrum. And the secondary, of course, debate, Conrad, which I, I, I post a lot of, little bit about it, but in our recent April episode, it's clearly visible, like just the attitude of some of the former saints of the church towards, say, Ivan Grozny, who criticized him openly, right? And he's, a, mind you, just an Orthodox Tsar who's anointed, who was raised in the church from the age of three, who is, you know, essentially the de facto ruler of the Katekon, and he receives direct criticism of his actions, of his um, anti-Christian positions and anti-Christian acts throughout his entire life by various saints, St. Saint Basil, St. Saint Macarius, of course, St. Philip, uh, you know, uh, St. Hermogenes, St. Herman of Kazan, St. Nicholas of Pskov, the, the list goes on and on. All these various saints speak to him and, of course, kind of, and they just don't want to tell him off, but they tell him that this is how you're supposed to do things. Do we see the same from the Ukrainian Orthodox hierarchs? Are they telling Zelensky what the correct thing to do is? Have they responded to this move to decriminalize pornography, for example, on a national scale? What kind of fruits will this bear? Again, there's more of a focus on virtue signaling rather than actual palpable advice that maybe should be given to some of these politicians who claim to be members of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, right? I, of course, the last the last thing I will mention, and this, this really caught me off guard because, again, most of this news is negative, but frankly, this one is probably the worst. So Dmitry Gordon, the infamous uh, Judeo-Ukrainian journalist who has like over 4 million subscribers on YouTube, huge Ukrainian journalist, was given a tour of a Russian POW camp in Ukraine, in Western Ukraine, so next to Lvov somewhere out, out West. And he was presented with all the, the best conditions. So the Russian POWs, they receive really good treatment. And look, they even have a chapel and a church. And he's led into the church, given this tour. And of course, the, the tour guide explains, oh, this church is a union church. So, of course, Dimitri Gordon didn't go into details, but he's like, oh, so they can come here for Easter and Christmas and all these feast days. And the man says, absolutely. All the Russian prisoners can come here for all these various feast days. Like, do we realize what kind of satanic idea that is, Conrad? Can you imagine the Russian military? The Russian prisoners are probably 0.001% Uniut. There's probably no Catholics in the Russian army whatsoever, including especially those belonging to Uniut, <laughs> autonomous church, right, of the of the Roman Catholics, uh, that particular branch. And in fact, them, they, they give the opportunity of Russians, of Russian POWs under so much pressure and stress, being prisoners of war to actually attend a heretical, well, from our perspective, from our Eastern Orthodox perspective, a heretical parish. I mean, that's just... That's almost like a war crime. If anything, that's a crime against the soul. That's even worse than torture, in fact. And it just kind of seducing them, like like Satan seduced Adam and Eden in Eden uh, as a snake. This is like something out of, I don't know, out of the lives of saints, right? That you'd read about somebody trying to pull Christians into, into apostasy. Very, very, very disgusting. But yeah, that's some of the big news, I suppose, ongoing this week, at least in, in that particular region of Eastern Europe. I pray for the church every night. I hope that things can be resolved there again as the Russian front line advances. It's one of those things that as that happens on the Ukrainian side, things might get worse, but it does get better for those people that do get liberated from this, this nonsense of this 
silly, silly regime that unfortunately Western governments insist on propping up. But before we turn it away, before we let y'all go this week, we have to, of course, mention Trump. He is, as recording this, about to be arrested in Fulton County, Georgia. I'm sure you'll see his thumbnail, and we will be uh, posting that around. It's, of course, we've seen the scandal that they've supposedly purposefully lowered the quality of the, th- of the camera that they take the mug shots with. And it's, it appears that they're doing everything to get this guy out. And, of course, we, we support Donald Trump. We have some critiques of him, of course. But he's, of course, the front runner. He's probably going to get this nomination for the Republican, you know, the Republican Party's nomination. And then they're going to do everything they can to steal the election in the general in 2024. So we're watching all of that very closely. Tucker had a great interview with Tucker. I mean, Trump had a great interview with Tucker just recently after the McGregor interview. They talk about a lot of very interesting stuff. Uh, they got hundreds of millions of views or whatever, so it's definitely showing that X and this, you know, alternative stuff, the parallel economy is growing. Trump's loyal followers have not abandoned him, so we're going to be keeping a close eye on that. But Dimitri, unless you have anything else to say about the church, about the SMO, about Prigozhin, about Trump, then I'm gonna we're going to do the plugs. Yeah, I think only uh, memory eternal and rest in peace to the to the heroes, to the you know, the casualties, the, the the victims of this particular crash, whether it was an absolute accident, whether it was a terrorist act or an assassination attempt, you know, and a successful attempt at that. All those people should be prayed for. So if you do have time, definitely pray for the souls of those who reposed on that particular crash, because they don't really care about you know who exactly murdered them or why exactly the accident happened. Their souls right now are you know, traversing through the toll houses. So their particular, um, you know, God will judge them very soon, actually. So in fact, um, their sins are very much open to them. And of course, hopefully their guardian angels are with them for those of them who are baptized and active members of the church. But we should be praying for them, if anything. So it's not even our attitude towards these particular victims or whether they were heroes, anti-heroes, traitors, that really doesn't matter to them right now because, you know their souls have uh, are into uh, are in a new particular phase of life. So their you know their story really has ended in this uh, sort of earthly sense. And you know uh, really at this point, all we can do for them is is that. And uh, we'll just see what what uh, church officials have to say about this particular accident. But it really it really has been a tragic week. There is no victory for Russia on this day of the twenty fourth of August in terms of um, you know just losing these heroes. There is nothing really to gain. Um, this is not how. If if for those claiming this is a prosecution of you know a persecution of traitors, it's not because we have innocent victims who've died. I I don't want that stupid idea that Putin you know this idea that Putin somehow was responsible and that he did the right thing. I mean, if he was responsible, he committed a crime, and if he if he wasn't, of course, this this particular crime will be investigated as to who exactly has done it. So that particular narrative shouldn't be pushed. And in fact, I think the most destructive narrative, Conrad in my opinion, is that Putin was correct for taking up Prigozhin in the plane. Because then it's like, no, that's unless you think Putin is good for being some sort of gangster figure and that's how you want to paint him, well, that's not exactly like a good look because, look, we have innocents dying, we have these officers. This is not how, this is not how justice is dealt, right? We don't have any... We don't have any historic Christian precedent for just, you know, shooting a plane out of the air or crashing it or planting bombs on planes. That's not justice. This is a crime, whoever committed it or if it was an accident, it was an accident. So the story ends. I don't think I want to see or hear anymore, especially people with Orthodox crosses in the name saying it's a good thing that Prigozhin died in this crash. No, it's, it isn't a good thing. It, there's, there's nothing good about it. And so, you know, we should definitely pray for the souls of the reposed, regardless of the opinions and attitudes towards these people. Well, perhaps we'll see some of this 
you know, some of the the energy from that translated towards the battlefield. But with all of that, be sure to keep up with the latest developments on all of this on our Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. Catch every episode, catch every episode of Ether Hour if you get behind the paywall. It really helps us out. We give you free episodes. This is a long one, an hour and a half plus every week. So be sure to support us there. It really helps us out. You get access to all the previous episodes of Ether Hour. We're getting close to 20. So it's, uh, yeah, be sure to check that out, worldwarnow.substack.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, worldwarnow underscore. Follow us on Telegram, worldwarnowtelly. Follow me on Twitter at GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri on Twitter at OCanonist. Uh, be sure to follow us on Rumble, World War Now. Follow us on YouTube, World War Now. We do live streams there, community posts, all sorts of great stuff. Leave a comment on Substack. Leave a comment on YouTube. We love talking to you guys. Uh, yeah, like I said, some of Argentine followers, please reach out, wanted to learn more and whatnot. But with all of that, God bless. And it's been a great show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>